0: God's Word is our great heritage and shall be ours forever. To Welcome to the God's Word, Our Great Heritage podcast. In our reading of Mark's Gospel, we have come to the last week of Jesus' earthly life, which will take up the last six chapters, roughly one-third of Mark's Gospel. We begin, in this podcast, with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is the time of the Passover, and as pilgrims make their way to Jerusalem, this city, normally home to around 100,000 residents, swelled to, according to historians, more than 2 million people. The Passover festival celebrated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Many Jews believed that the Messiah would appear at Passover and that he would lead them in driving out the hated Romans. So the Passover celebration in Jesus' day had a nationalistic feeling to it. There was always an, an anxious apprehension in the air. This year, maybe more than ever, because word had spread that Jesus, the miracle worker from Galilee, had raised Lazarus from the dead. Could this Jesus be the long-awaited Messiah? Will he deliver us from our enemies and restore the kingdom to Israel? Pilate, as he often was during times of potential unrest, was in residence in Jerusalem, as was Herod. Roman soldiers were everywhere, spears and swords openly displayed to let people know any uprising would be met with force. Convicted felons hung from crosses along well-traveled routes, letting people know this is the price of defying Rome. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, was also on high alert. It was well known that they wanted to be rid of this Jesus, kill him in some sly way, but not during the Passover, because they feared a riot. And then those Roman soldiers would spill Jewish blood all over the streets, and Pilate would take away the little bit of authority he had given them. All of which is to say, on that Palm Sunday, Jesus was riding into a powder keg. Let's begin with prayer. Ride on, ride on in majesty. Hark, all the tribes' hosanna cry. O Savior, meek, pursue your road with palms and scattered garments strode. Amen. Chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. The road from Jericho up to Jerusalem makes a steep ascent of 3,500 feet over the course of just 17 miles. As you approach Jerusalem from the east, you cannot see it because it is hidden behind the Mount of Olives. But when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, the entire city of Jerusalem bursts into view. It's kind of like approaching Cincinnati from the south on Interstate 75. Just as you come through the cut in the hill, the whole skyline of downtown, the whole riverfront spreads out before you. From the crest of that mount, Jesus could have viewed the Garden of Gethsemane where he would sweat blood as he prayed to his father, or the high priest's palace where his death sentence would be spoken, or Pilate's judgment hall where his own people shouted, crucify him. And just beyond the western wall, the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. Just before you get to the top of the Mount of Olives on the eastern slope are two little villages, Bethany and Bethphage. Here Jesus directs two of his followers to go and bring back a donkey colt for him to ride on. Now if you are these two disciples, are you wondering, what is the penalty for donkey theft these days? Jesus tells them, when they stop, you tell them, the Lord needs it. Think about that for a moment. In an absolute sense, the Lord doesn't need anything. He could have created a donkey or anything else he wanted to ride. He chose to need this donkey, just as he chooses to need us to carry his gospel message to others. Could it be the reason he chooses a donkey that an unassuming beast of burden trained to carry packs, not kings, was to show us that we would know he has chosen us, as lowly and as unimportant as we are, to carry him in the world in our day? I mean, have you ever wondered about that? Why the donkey? It wasn't that far from Bethphage to Jerusalem. Jesus could have walked. That's what he normally did. In the time it took for the disciples to locate the donkey, explain what they were doing, bring it back, it would have been faster just to walk to Jerusalem. But this day was not about travel time. It was about making a statement. And with his choice of transportation, Jesus was announcing, I am your Messiah, promised in Zechariah chapter 9. I am your King, the promised one, come to save you. And that statement wasn't missed by the people. Verse 7, when those disciples brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, Jesus said on it, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. These are not rich people with lots of cloaks who are taking them off to make a more comfortable saddle for Jesus or even more extravagant, to line the road for him. Others cut down palm branches, waving them and scattering those in his path, which is where we get the name Palm Sunday from. They are giving Jesus a royal welcome. The word Hosanna meant, save us, and is a quote from Psalm 118. He who comes was understood as a reference to the promised Messiah, and The coming kingdom of our father David expresses what they were expecting the Messiah to do. Clearly, they are expecting Jesus to be their king and to establish the kingdom of heaven among them. How strange it must have looked to the Roman soldiers watching all this. They had seen great generals ride into cities on proud horses or in decorated chariots surrounded by mighty warriors. A peasant rabbi comes riding on a pygmy donkey accompanied by some fishermen and a powerless mob, later joined by children. It didn't seem much of a threat to Rome. But you and I know Jesus could have come with outward, visible power. He could have ridden a thunderstorm with legions of angelic warriors flying beside him. So why did he come so humbly? Because he didn't come to demand anything from us but to give everything for us. He came to wage war with the only weapons that would work, himself as a sacrifice. He is going to battle against the dark places in our hearts and minds. He is taking on our worst enemies: sin, the wickedness that infests this world we live in, and Satan himself. His war is ultimately against our greatest enemy, death and the grave. In one of his devotional books, Daniel Deutschlander describes Palm Sunday this way. And so, as we stand in the crowd of Palm Sunday, our hearts are torn. A part of us, knowing where this journey ends, wants to cry out, Stop, Jesus, don't do this. A glance at his cross pierces our heart. And then another part of us says, Go quickly. Go into the hatred and abuse, the cruel death, and the unspeakable agony of being abandoned by your Father. Accomplish everything I need for my salvation, for if you turn away from it, I am lost forever. If you leave even the smallest shred of the work for me to do, hell is my future, and the present life is nothing more than hell's waiting room. So, go, Jesus. The hymn writer captures it well. Write on, write on in majesty, in lowly pomp, right on to die. Bow your meek head to mortal pain, then take, O Christ, your power and reign. Verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. These verses raise a number of questions. First, Jesus had fed 5,000 with one boy's lunch. Why not do a miracle and provide himself with something to eat if he was hungry? The answer is that Jesus always did miracles to serve others. He did not use his divine power to serve himself. A second question might be, why did Jesus get so upset with this tree, especially if it was not the season for figs? Is he just taking out his frustration here? No. Without getting into the specifics of fig trees and early figs and late figs, I think it's best to leave it at this. Jesus was using this fig tree as he often used things in nature to teach a greater truth. In fact, he uses this fig tree to teach two truths. The second will come out in the verses we'll cover next week. But the first had to do with the temple and what comes in the following verses. God is warning us that when something no longer fulfills its purpose, God will take it away. The temple no longer fulfilled its purpose. In fact, as Jesus now says, it had become a den of robbers. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, The temple served as a powerful visual proclamation of law and gospel. Sin brought death. The sight and the smell and the sound of death were all around in the sacrifices God had prescribed. But those sacrifices also pointed to a substitute whom God would provide, one who would die in our place so that we might live. That was the message of the sacrifices, a substitute will die for our sins. And in this message of law and gospel, sin and grace, God came to his people. But when Jesus came to the outer court of the temple, the place where converts to Judaism could witness these sacrifices, did he find the Bible teachers faithfully explaining and applying God's word to these Gentile converts? No, no. He found a marketplace, complete with the sights and sounds and smells of caged animals and birds being offered for sale. The racket of the animals was mixed in with the clinking of coins and the voices of those who exchanged foreign currency for the coinage that could be used for offerings at the temple. Allegedly, all of this selling of animals and exchanging currency was done as a convenience for the worshiper who had traveled from a distance. This way you could exchange your coins right there at the temple. You didn't have to bring an animal along with you. But excessive prices were being charged for the animals. And exorbitant rates were being charged for the currency exchange. It was all a very lucrative business for Caiaphas and the rest of the chief priests. There is a strong warning here. To take our church life seriously we dare not allow it to become merely a social experience and we dare not let our own self-interests trump letting others hear and learn god's word at the end of the day jesus did as he had the evening before he returned to the village of bethany for the night no doubt that was safer than staying in jerusalem Next week, we continue in chapter 11 as Jesus returns to Jerusalem and does his last public teaching there. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.